not uncommon at the end of uh, the first day of a retreat when this sometimes shocking, provocative question arises, what the hell am I doing here, or what's the big deal about mindfulness? I mean, it really is, I mean, it's appropriate to be a little bit suspicious anyway in spiritual circles because we've, all of us probably, have uh, gotten excited about this truth or that practice or this charismatic teacher, charismatic teaching, only to sort of just feel like we got uh, left empty-handed, like there wasn't the promise that seemed to be there didn't turn out to be much. And so it is. I mean, just like in the news every week, there's some miracle cure. If you eat this, something great's going to happen. And, uh, and in some ways, mindfulness is having its day. It's, it's a real fad now. And so it's appropriate to be a little bit suspicious about what the big deal is about mindful awareness. And, uh, you know, the Buddha was quite provocative <clears throat> in terms of this path. It really is grounded in the cultivation of present moment awareness. Some of you know this passage from the Satipatthana Sutta, the Buddha's discourse on the foundations, establishments of mindfulness, where he says, this is the direct path for the purification of beings, for the overcoming of sorrow and lamentation, for the disappearance of pain and distress, for the attainment of the right method, for the realization of unbinding. In other words, the four foundations of mindfulness. There is the case where a practitioner remains aware of the activities of the body and the mind. The activity of the body, the activity of the mind being the feeling tone, the <clears throat> activity of the mind, the qualities of the mind, and specifically the supporting qualities for awakening. Established or um, aware of the activities of the body and mind in and of themselves, ardent, alert, mindful, putting aside greed and distress with reference to the world. So our objective right, is, it really comes from this basic insight that the Buddha had, that probably we've had to some degree, that the real problem is our misperceiving or misunderstanding what's happening. So our actions, including how we think about things, what we say to ourselves and others, <clears throat> what we, how we act, all of that arises out of misunderstanding and misperception. And then uh, we get a world that feels and looks like this world where people are acting based on their conceptions, not based on what's actually showing up. 
the way it is. And so the Buddha's uh, <clears throat> discernment, if the problem is misunderstanding, misperceiving, then the resolution of human suffering, this is the provocative part, then the resolution is seeing things as they are, not misperceiving, not misunderstanding. So mindfulness, mindful awareness, this wisdom awareness, this clear comprehending of the way things are is the basic correction from what ails us. And it's for us to check out, like, does this make sense? Could it possibly be this straightforward? And, you know, one experience we have that lends support to this basic analysis that human beings are suffering from misperceiving, from the reverberations of misperceiving, misunderstanding, this suffering, our suffering, the wider suffering in the world, will then cease, will alleviate and cease as human beings live seeing things as they are. And we get a little clue to this, like when um, something happens to us, we are disappointed with what's for lunch, or we have a lot of knee pain, or our roommate snores, or you know, whatever might be upsetting, it rains, or we can't seem to have a good sit like we had earlier in the day, and we're all upset, all entangled with that. And just to see, when we bring a stable, unwavering, clear, mindful presence to that dance of emotion, of thought, of sensation, the experience in the body and the mind, does the experience of being a suffering human being, does it diminish? And as we over and over again just keep meeting the moment with this wise present moment awareness. And it's just like <clears throat> to be a little bit, especially on retreat, we can be kind of provocative, almost like we're waiting for suffering to show up to test whether this is true. And then some, whatever the particular kind of suffering is, and we do our best over and over again because we'll lose it. We'll take the bait and we'll react and we'll get entangled and caught up in our thoughts about this and that. But we do our best just to be with the suffering as something being known here in the body and the mind, moment by moment. And we're the kind of uh, test we're checking out or experiment we're checking out is, is it possible to be a suffering human being when there's clear, wise, kind, stable, present moment awareness? Like, can you have both? And I'm not trying to convince us one way or the other, but just to really see this as an opportunity to check that out.
<clears throat> and sometimes I call this, you know, that's a particular kind of power, that mindful awareness, this, this, the discerning power of mindful awareness, that continuity of present moment awareness. It really forces the heart or mind to come into alignment with the way things are. And the, the sort of hypothesis is, is that suffering arises because of a misalignment, that there's a living, you know, this me, I'm living in a way that's out of alignment. Because I'm living based on my conceptions of what's happening to me, and that conception comes unavoidably with suffering. The heart feels oppressed, heavy, entangled. And what our normal response is, well, let me fix this. Let me get rid of the oppression. Let me disentangle from the tangle. But it never works. It works just enough that we keep attempting this so-called, you know, skillful move, but it's actually perpetuates suffering. Because the move itself comes out of the misunderstanding that this is my suffering. We arrogantly presume we understand our predicament, so our solution, our analysis and, and response arises out of that misunderstanding that delusion, that we, that we get what's going on. I'm a deluded, suffering human being, and I'm going to do this spiritual move, and then I'll be free from the suffering. And, you know, it's, we've been betrayed by that over and over again. So we're always looking for, okay, we never take enough steps back. We're just looking, like, for a better move that I can do. Who's got the right move? There's got to be a move here for me to use. And what our Buddha Dharma practice keeps whispering to us is, you don't really know enough to move, to offer up a response, right? We need to take a closer look, a broader look, more continuous look on what's here and now, and let our response come from that, not from any sort of rushed or hurried sense that I need to address my suffering. Because there's so much presumption. I mean, I see this all the time. I mean, I see it in myself, of course. But I see it in other people, because I'm, you know, in that position where people come to see me to talk about life, their mind, and suffering. And the thing I see in myself and I see in other people over and over again is this presumption. The mind has drawn a lot of conclusions about what I'm calling my suffering. And I'm not so interested in hearing, honey, maybe you don't, see the whole picture. Maybe you're not really seeing clearly the way it is. 
there's something about suffering, hurting, that because part of the defense I can offer up when I'm hurting is I can at least pretend I have a sense of what's going on. Because there's only one thing worse than suffering. Suffering and not having a clue about what it is. But that's actually the place we have to go to. Right? And that's really where mindfulness comes in because mindfulness isn't arising. I mean, real mindfulness, when it's stable, simple, clear, it's not arising out of presumption or assumption. Right? We're really learning to trust that more, you could say, mirror-like aspect of the mind that simply reflects, illuminates, or reflects what's being known. And of course, whatever experience like knee pain, or boredom, or judgment that might arise and be known, it's going to trigger a lot of you know, other past experience, experiences when I felt bored before, I felt no good before, I felt physical pain before. So a lot of, we call that in sort of practice, we call those mental formations or sankara. It's the stuff that gets triggered when we have any experience, any previous experience, uh, impressions that have been left in the heart from past experience, when an experience in the present moment arises, anything related to that, in a sense, reverberates. So it's complex. But that's okay, because there really is this capacity of mindful awareness to simply reflect everything that's arising and passing in the body and the mind as just the phenomena being known. Even when the mind is really confused, then that can be reflected. Oh, confusion's like this. Not having a clue is like this. So there's really nothing that can arise in the body and the mind as a present moment experience that this quality we're calling mindfulness can't just reflect as something being known. And it's really, we say mindfulness, but we're really talking about this coming together of wisdom and mindful awareness. Because the wisdom piece, like mindfulness in a more technical sense, is just that ability the mind has to keep something in mind. And wisdom is saying, and what I want you to keep in mind, of all the things you might keep in mind, I'd like you to keep in mind the arising and passing of the present moment. Not being confused by your conceptual interpretation of the present moment, what I think is happening, but in a more direct and immediate way, sound is being known or heard, seeing is being seen, touching is being felt, thinking is just that, just a thought being known as a thought, 
Like, think about how many thoughts we had today. I mean, it's got to be 10,000 or so, right? A lot of thoughts. How rare was it when there was a thought arising in the mind? How rare was it today for there to be a clear recognition that's just a thought? So there's the content of the thought or the mental image of the thought. But there could be that reflective recognition that this is just something being known in the present moment. That this particular content or this particular mental image is arising and being known. Right? So we're usually not aware, mindfully aware, that a thought is just this thought being known. Just like sensation is just that sensation being known. It's this reflectiveness that that's what wisdom is asking mindfulness to keep in mind. That it's just something being known. Just something being known. That's the wisdom part of our practice, what we call right view. Sometimes we say that as, well, it's just this natural process of an experience being known, an experience being known. And that just happens, that's just what human life or being a, a sentient being is. It's just something being known, followed by something being known. That's it. And mindful, wisdom and mindfulness together then keeps this in mind. We're really hitting this note or landing here over and over again as often as we can. This is being known, this is being known, this is being known. So when we train with the anchor, primary anchor like the body or the breath in the body, right? we're, we're just using that relatively concrete, relatively neutral experience of sensation, whether it's the sensation of sitting or the sensations of walking, or more specifically the sensation of the breath moving in the body, we're just using it conveniently as a training ground to keep hitting that note, keep landing with that simple because like, mindfulness is keeping something in mind, what are we keeping in mind? That in this moment, this is being known. This is being known. That's all there is. Meaning, the experience of this being known doesn't refer to anything. If it seems like the experience that's being known refers back to you or refers to something, then that's just the next thing being known. That taking it personally, or that self-consciousness. That's just another thing being known in the next moment. Well, self-consciousness feels like this. Oh, that's weird. Okay, feeling weird is like this. So whatever happens to us as a human being, mindfulness is keeping in mind that it's just something being known here and now. That's what we mean by the present moment. The present moment is the place, you could say, that this is being known happens. And in the present moment, that's all that ever happens in the present moment. Except that most of the time, 
the mind isn't aware. The mind is misperceiving the present moment, so it thinks that its interpretation of what's happening, its story, its thoughts, is what's happening. I'm sitting in this room. And then the mind assumes that's what's happening. But that's a thought being known from a practice point of view. So it's a different, it's, it's not an easy training to do. And if you're tired after your first day, that's appropriate because we are definitely training the mind. We're just not kind of here in a peaceful place relaxing and letting the mind do what it does because then the mind is going to, you know, it's going to do what it always does and get the same results it always gets. It's going to fantasize about what it likes and it's going to fear the stories that scare it and it's going to, you know, endlessly proliferate. Now the key, like if you really buy into this practice that the Buddha set up, then you want to drop all other practices for as much of the day as possible. Which means you just do whatever you're going to do during the day. Come to sit, do a walk, do your yogi job, eat your meals, use the toilet, rest when you need to rest. But really what we're doing all of those times equally is we're remembering to recognize the present moment as something being known. Something being known. What's being known? What's the mind knowing? What's the mind knowing now? And you never have to second guess what the mind is knowing. There are so many possible objects in any given moment for the attention to pay attention to. But whatever in that moment the mind is paying attention to is fine because the object doesn't really matter so much. Now, when and I, especially for the first couple of days, are going to be really inviting people, encouraging people to develop a really healthy, friendly, persistent relationship with your primary anchors, like the physicality of walking, the physicality of breathing, or the more generally just the body sitting on the chair, on the cushion. Some people use hearing as one of the primary anchors. Not figuring out what's being heard, but just the reality that hearing is being known. At any moment, it's that whatever the hearing is in that moment, that it's just the recognition that hearing is being known. Because this, it's, what's so surprising is this practice, basically we're bathing the mind, immersing the mind in the continuity of mindful awareness. And it purifies view. It purifies the mind's attitudes and views. Because any unwholesome attitude, any self view, self-centered view, self-centered drama that were to arise in the context of the practice, then 
that would be seen as something being known. Oh, being self-centered is being known. Being afraid is being known. Being proud is being known. Right? Just that emotional state, that attitude, it can just be recognized as something being known. And we can always come back, see that the thing is, it's not so when we're entangled in our attitude, identified with our attitudes and our reactions and our hopes and fears, it's really not that easy to see the next hope or fear that arises. So one of the real advantages of training with the, uh, the primary anchor is if I have a little bit of continuity with the breath, or a little bit of continuity, mindful awareness with the whole body sitting. Sitting is like this, hardness is like this, vibration is like this, or whatever we're feeling. Then when some reaction happens, some wave of emotion, some story, some fantasy arises, the, whatever continuity, whatever momentum of mindful awareness is there, then it's going to more likely see that you know mental activity in a fresh way as something being known. Oh, it's just this self-centered drama being known. So in the same way, it's really hard to catch a self-centered drama when we're already attached or identified with the current self-centered drama. It's relatively easy for it to be noticed as just the phenomena being known when the mind is in that simplicity of lifting, placing, lifting, placing in the walking practice or rising of the abdominal wall when the breath is coming in, falling of the abdominal wall when the breath is going out. Because it's like a, a real shift in channels. You know, when we're in that simplicity of physicality, of embodiment, hearing, feeling the whole body, feeling the predominant sensations of the body, or specifically tracking the physicality of the breath. So we're in that world of sensation primarily. Right? And then some mental drama arises and the strong tendency to identify. I mean, it's like loud and clear. I think Wynne mentioned in her response to one of the questions today, it's just like suffering wakes us up. The, the, even before the mind is fully identified, attached, and proliferating with the mental content, just the moments before that, if there's some continuity of awareness, we sense dukkha. Like, oh, honey... This is not this is not going to be helpful. Right? It's like you know that moment, those moments before you do something really stupid that we keep doing, you know? And sometimes the momentum of the habit just takes us right into it and we get burnt again. And sometimes at some point, right, this very appropriate fear arises. And it's really highlighted in the Buddhist teachings, this hiri otapa, this powerful fear. Are you sure you want to do that? That's wisdom. That's like the most earthy form of wisdom in the Buddhist teachings. This 
kind of powerful remorse and concern. We've done this before. You sure you want to do this again? This reminds me of something. Yeah, hell. (laughs) (laughs) And And again, it's like, even if we, because of the force of habit, do it one more time, you'll see it on retreat. Already today, how many pathways has our mind gone down where we're thinking or worrying about something we really don't need to think or worry or fantasize about, but there we go. And the mind gets all discombobulated, maybe 15 minutes later or whatever, sometimes much longer. We finally you know, get exhausted by the wild ride the mind has been on, and we feel what's left of the, de- the destruction, like after a wildfire, like how much has been burnt down, how much stability of mind, how much tranquility has been disrupted because of that, what seemed like a good idea, what seemed juicy in a self-centered kind of way, but just what did it really leave us with? So then we build that wholesome remorse and concern like, okay, I blew it. But I I really don't want to forget, this is the fruit of that, cause and effect. When the mind does that, then it feels like this. We really kind of own that as um, a really earthy wisdom. And then the next time around, when we're in that about to moment, it's like that part of the wisdom speaks to the mind. Are you sure? Seems to me... This has an unwholesome taste. Remember? And it isn't even personal. That wisdom, all wisdom, operates impersonally. But it gets set in motion through awareness. So don't feel like when you're getting pushed around by your mind and you characterize your day on retreat as mostly being lost in thought, being pushed around in this way, then being pushed around in that way, doesn't mean we're not learning something, right? Are we growing this concern and remorse that knows that when the mind does this, takes the bait in this way, gets identified in this way, we get pushed around. We really want to appreciate like whatever moments of mindful awareness we have they're very, it's a very powerful seed. And I really like the image of a seed, like a moment of mindfulness is planting a seed, because seeds are very impactful. Many of you have heard me say that, say this, and other teachers use this image a lot, because it's a really potent image. Like I've done a little research in Wikipedia. <laughs> about seeds, and and, uh, there's, um, I think it was a date palm seed that they found in some cave somewhere where it's dry, so it got preserved, and, you know, I think it was 2,200 years or something like that, a couple thousand years old, and they planted it, and it sprouted, sitting there somewhere for 2,000 years but still able to grow a plant 
that's able to have more seeds, more plants, more seed, right? So that one seed waiting for its opportunity, right? So there's something really potent in seeds. And uh, this works both ways, of course. <laughs> like we, when we plant unwholesome seeds and the mind takes another trip around that unwholesome block, whether it's 10 minutes or an hour, obsessing, proliferating, fueled by that particular way of framing experience with greed or framing experience with fear or rage or anger, right? coloring it a particular way that keeps this churning, right? Because when our experience, our mental experience is framed with greed or aversion and all the different flavors of greed and aversion, then every time we think or imagine something, it hurts a little, as greed and aversion does. And then because of that leftover hurt, we feel compelled to think it again, you know, slightly different riff on it. And that triggers the greed and aversion, which hurts. And this is the feedback mechanism that keeps us going until the mind is thoroughly exhausted by the mental proliferation and it sets down that content, that particular loop, and looks for another loop because we feel so, you know, that kind of icy, cold, hollow, barren feeling when we've been obsessing for a while and finally wore it out. The only thing that, it's like, the, you know where we know this feeling is when we've watched way too much TV and finally there's no more of that series. <laughs> but the interesting thing is, what does the mind really want to do after a few seconds? First, there's a little relief. The TV goes off. We want to get involved in some other obsessive pattern. We'll go to the fridge. We'll look for something to keep. Basically, we don't want to be there in the aftermath and feel what we feel. We want to get lost again. So what we're doing is we're in a very profound way, and it, it, it really needs to be an act of love, an act of devotion to this wisdom awareness as our Savior. I mean, really, this, I often joke, <clears throat> you know, in our tradition, especially early Buddhism, which is quite unorthodox. No, no. <laughs> I was going to say uh, adorned, unadorned, right? Not very fancy. We have one beautiful devotional object. Unfortunately, it's not easily depicted in art, right? It's mindful awareness, this wisdom awareness. Like, oh, this is being known. It feels like this. It's just this feeling being felt. But this is really what, over time, as we check it out, we really are grateful for. And it's powerful, it's not a feeble thing. Eventually we've had enough experiences where it's really saved our butt from doing something that could have caused a lot of suffering. We finally unhooked from some really toxic pattern through the use of mindful awareness. 
and we just have so much gratitude, then we're in the second phase where we want to convert everyone, right? We don't know what to do with the gratitude and the energy, like we found something that works. And of course, what our teachers tell us is, well, you just keep practicing. And the way that you support other people who maybe don't have a clue about the practice is you become somebody who's kinder and wiser and more nimble in life, and then they'll say, what the heck are you up to? (laughs) You know, and when they ask that enough times, sincerely enough, then you can share your practice with them. Because it's, it's amazing how much, it's like, you know, another expression of that is being on retreat, thinking about going on retreat. That's exactly the same thing, you know, being on retreat, thinking about telling other people about the practice, or being on retreat, thinking about, oh, this is such a great practice, I've got to do more of these retreats. And here we are on retreat fantasizing about being mindfully aware and about all the value, all the insight and value that will come from this. This is not uncommon. Really. It's a little bit another thing I often joke about because it's so, I've seen it so many times in my practice, is like fantasizing about loving kindness. It's like Hallmark Hallmark Channel on steroids, if if you've ever seen those. I mean, like, better production values, could afford better actors, better screenplays, and really poignant stories, um, metta, loving-kindness stories. And the heart is, like, really moved. But what's really getting reinforced, I mean, it's a relatively wholesome fantasy, but what's really getting reinforced is the not being there. Not being clearly aware that it's just this mental image being known, or just this emotional feeling being felt, or just this experience being known. It's just this. So, actually, the seed that's getting planted is the seed of delusion, not being clearly aware of the way it is. And it can be quite pleasant. I mean, our fantasizing or being lost in thought is not unpleasant all the time. And generally, when it gets really unpleasant, we jump ship, right? From one mental proliferation starting to lose its juiciness, and even with one eye still on the, the obsession, we got the other eye out looking for something to hop onto. What else could I worry about or plan or fantasize about? And then when we got something in view, we take the other eye off of what we were obsessing about. And the thing is, we never see that in real time, because if we did, it would be so humiliating to see what the mind does. Because in this moment, before we jump ship, in order to keep the obsession going, we have to be whispering the lie that this is important. Even while part of the mind is looking for something that's more juicy. But pay no attention to that. And then all of a sudden, this is important. 
So we learn a lot. I mean, unfortunately, it's mostly unpleasant, but we learn a lot seeing the cycles of delusion. And when we'll break this down later in the week, she'll give a couple talks about, you know, the difficulties of the mind and the different, you know, kind of outlining the hindrances and how conceit operates in the mind. But right now, like for the first few days, to really, to develop this devotion to starting over again, to really finding a healthy, beautiful relationship with our primary objects, really learning how to connect and sustain mindful awareness, even if it's just for a few seconds before the mind is lost. And really see that as a kind of training like knowing that the mind is lost is good. That's a moment of awareness when we're clearly recognized that I've been lost in thought. So there's no reason in that moment to be frustrated or to feel like a failure because that's a powerful moment when we realize like my mind, my heart is under the influence of you know, the momentum of this habit energy to keep proliferating, but we feel the tug like we do when we wake up out of a intoxicating dream, you know, and we're kind of awake. And the one thing we're aware of is how much we want to go back to the dream. Do you know that feeling? Mm-hmm. When we've been sort of startled out of a dream, we really, and it can be so frustrating, we're like, well, what was I dreaming? I don't even know what the dream was, but I know I want to go back there. <laughs> That's like a real flavor of craving, right? It doesn't even matter. We just want to be lost, absorbed. We don't want to be in real time, in the present. So really be appreciative of those moments where we've been drowning in mental proliferation and then for, to whatever degree we're above the surface and we realize a little bit what's been happening. Be really grateful for that moment. And then that's where this there's this act of courage where we choose, right? We find it's going to be mostly a weak and feeble intention hidden somewhere in the background about coming back to the primary object. Most of what's going to be loud and on the surface of the mind is, let me just think this through and I'll be done. Some lie, basically. The mind will lie to itself. I'm almost there. Just need to do one more lap around with this thing, this content. And then in the distance will be that quiet, wise voice. You know, remember your primary object. There is a body here. There's a sitting body. There's a breathing body. There's a walking body. There's the experience of lifting and placing not fancy, but it's real. And there can be this very simple integrity where the mind, for a few moments at least, can have this clear recognition of the present moment. Lifting is being known. Placing is being known. Breathing in or the rising, the sensations of the rising abdomen or the sensations of the touching as the breath comes in the nostrils or just the feeling of the body upright, 
or the obvious touch points, whatever sensation is clear in that moment. This is, this reality of sensation is being known. And if there's liking or not liking, let that be in the background. But if it comes in the foreground, then just acknowledge, I don't like these sensations. And that not liking is being known. And then just sustaining, really getting that this is where that devotional energy, like this is, you want to see the continuity of mindful awareness as like being in new, a new land, new ground. The mystery. And like the hardest thing. So part of making it a devotional object is like this respect. It's so hard, because some of us like a challenge. It's so hard to sustain this present moment awareness. Let's see if it can be sustained just through the in-breath, just through the out-breath, just through one more in-breath. Even if you're feeling the whole body, you can still use the rhythm of the breath to encourage this sustaining. Just one more half-breath. Even if you're working with hearing, Breathing in, aware, hearing is being known. Breathing out, hearing is being known. So that rhythm of the breath, even when you're kind of having a more open awareness of different objects being known, the rhythm of the breath really keeps it simple because it's, we're not, see, as soon as we have this idea of continuity, it's a setup. But what can happen is for a few moments there can be continuity and then a few more moments. We really want to get a sense of the power and the value of that. That's, that's like the, the point of mindful awareness, wisdom awareness is a devotional object. It's like, you know, we pray to God and God shows up. So we, we do the work of devotion like we stay interested in the present moment, and it starts to deliver. And we stay interested a little bit more, and it delivers a little bit more. And it's really an exponential function. When there's continuity, really, our reality really changes quickly, just in a matter of a few unwavering seconds of mindful awareness. We start to feel the power, the penetrating power. We basically start to learn. The mind starts to learn, sees what it hasn't seen. But it's not a conceptual learning. It isn't like the thinking mind can grasp what's happening. It will attempt to grasp, and if we get identified with that thinking about what's happening, we'll lose it. Just let whatever excitement and mental proliferation, just let that happen in the background. That's just thinking being known. And just stay with the training, with the primary anchor, so that you can really build and deepen this devotional relationship with awareness. And you, when you see people bowing down to the altar, they're bowing down. They're just sort of, you know, symbols up here. But we're really bowing down to the practice. That's what we care about. That's the only thing that's going to save us. Nothing helps. Does it wouldn't matter if we had the Buddha 
themselves in the front of the room, right? It wouldn't really matter. Only thing that matters is doing the practice. And so that, you know, moving from any sort of outer expression, whatever sort of, you know, is useful for us, but it has to be connected. That's why last night I briefly mentioned, you know, the practice is Buddha knowing Dhamma. So the word Buddha means that wakefulness, awake, awakeful, uh, how does Ajahn Sumedho say it? Um, awakenedness. Is that how he says it? Anyway, but it's that, that kind of potent um, respect for this capacity of the mind to be reflectively aware, right? To remember to recognize this is being known. So simple, but not easy to remember this is being known. And not the words, this is being known, right? But to uncover in any moment that capacity, that reflective capacity. Oh, this is an experience that's being known. And that exactly sums up what this moment is. Like when the mind recognizes that this is being known, there's a sense of totality. Like in that moment, wisdom or the mind isn't missing anything. There's something complete in that. And it has the taste of freedom, even however subtle it might be. It really feels right in the deepest sense when the mind understands that this is being known. And so we really have to trust that intuitive sense of rightness. Not so much. I mean, it does make sense intellectually, and, you know, obviously I'm talking about it now with concepts. But we could spend the next nine days thinking about this, too. You know, like, oh yeah, mindfulness, wisdom, awareness really does make sense. And here's why I think it makes sense. And we could have a lot of interesting thoughts, a little bit like, you know, what I've said tonight, this last hour. But the point of a talk like this is to bring us to the precipice where there's right thought. What's the big deal about mindful awareness? Well, I do have this moment here. I could check it out. Should I? Oh yeah, this is being known. This is being known. And even when the mind gets excited about it or has some doubt about it, it doesn't have to throw the momentum of the practice off because that's just something, whatever it is, it's just the next moment of something being known. Something being known. And that's the key to drop everything else but this. We only need to remember this. And if you find yourself doing something else, notice that whatever it is you're doing, right or wrong, skillful or unskillful, it's just something being known and appreciate that. Because a lot of people in this room have learned a lot of spiritual practices over the years. And in this setting, it can feel appropriate to sort of do other things. But I'm really encouraging you to check out 
this very simple practice and to really make it your devotional friend, the thing you are aligning with in your life. You can still do everything else you were planning on doing in your life. Master knitter or, you know, great person or evil tyrant. <laughs> It'd be harder to do the evil tyrant thing. <laughs> But you can give it a go. <laughs> Probably end up being a benevolent dictator. <laughs> But just let this be the priority, right? That this is being known. Because it, it just takes away all the friction, all the stickiness in life. It really has the taste of liberation. So let's just take a few moments, let go of the words. Appreciate just a few moments of silence. Out if you have the energy, we'll do some chanting um, and then sit for maybe.